Section 12 of The Theory of the Leisure Class This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen Second Part of Chapter 6 Pecuniary Canons of Taste Similarly, it is felt, and the sentiment is acted upon, that the priestly servitors of the divinity should not engage in industrially productive work. That work of any kind, any employment which is of tangible human use, must not be carried on in the divine presence, or within the precincts of the sanctuary. That whoever comes into the presence should come cleansed of all profane industrial features in his apparel or person and should come clad in garments of more than everyday expensiveness. That on holidays set apart in honour of, or for communion with, the divinity, no work that is of human use should be performed by any one. Even the remoter lay dependence should render a vicarious leisure to the extent of one day in seven. In all these deliverances of men's uninstructed sense of what is fit and proper in devout observance, and in the relations of the divinity, the effectual presence of the canons of pecuniary reputability is obvious enough, whether these canons have had their effect on the devout judgment in this respect immediately, or at the second remove. These canons of reputability have had a similar, but more far-reaching and more specifically determinable, effect upon the popular sense of beauty or serviceability in consumable goods. The requirements of pecuniary decency have, to a very appreciable extent, influence the sense of beauty and of utility in articles of use or beauty. Articles are to an extent preferred for use on account of their being conspicuously wasteful. They are felt to be serviceable somewhat in proportion as they are wasteful and ill-adapted to their ostensible use. The utility of articles valued for their beauty depends closely upon the expensiveness of the articles. A homely illustration will bring out this dependence. A hand-wrought silver spoon of a commercial value of some ten to twenty dollars, is not ordinarily more serviceable, in the first sense of the word, than a machine-made spoon of the same material. It may not even be more serviceable than a machine-made spoon of some base metal, such as aluminium, the value of which may be no more than some ten to twenty cents. The former of the two utensils is, in fact, commonly a less effective contrivance for its ostensible purpose than the latter. The objection is of course ready to hand that, in taking this view of the matter, one of the chief uses, if not the chief use, of the costlier spoon is ignored. The hand-wrought spoon gratifies our taste, our sense of the beautiful, while that made by machinery out of the base metal has no useful office beyond a brute efficiency. The facts are no doubt as the objection states them, but it will be evident on rejection that the objection is after all more plausible than conclusive. It appears, one, that while the different materials of which the two spoons are made each possess beauty and serviceability for the purpose for which it is used, the material of the hand-wrought spoon is some one hundred times more valuable than the baser metal, without very greatly excelling the latter in intrinsic beauty of grain or colour, and without being in any appreciable degree superior in point of mechanical serviceability. Two, 
If a close inspection should show that the supposed hand-wrought spoon were in reality only a very clever citation of hand-wrought goods, but an imitation so cleverly wrought as to give the same impression of line and surface to any but a minute examination by a trained eye, the utility of the article, including the gratification which the user derives from its contemplation as an object of beauty, would immediately decline by some eighty or ninety percent or even more. 3. If the two spoons are, to a fairly close observer, so nearly identical in appearance that the lighter weight of the spurious article alone betrays it, this identity of form and colour will scarcely add to the value of the machine-made spoon, nor appreciably enhance the gratification of the user's sense of beauty. In contemplating it, so long as the cheaper spoon is not a novelty, and so long as it can be procured at a nominal cost. The case of the spoons is typical. The superior gratification derived from the use and contemplation of costly and supposedly beautiful products is, commonly, in great measure a gratification of our sense of costliness masquerading under the name of beauty. Our higher appreciation of the superior article is an appreciation of its superior honorific character, much more frequently than it is an unsophisticated appreciation of its beauty. The requirement of conspicuous wastefulness is not commonly present, consciously, in our canons of taste, but it is nonetheless present as a constraining norm selectively shaping and sustaining our sense of what is beautiful, and guiding our discrimination with respect to what may legitimately be approved as beautiful and what may not. It is at this point, where the beautiful and the honorific meet and blend, that a discrimination between serviceability and wastefulness is most difficult in any concrete case. It frequently happens that an article which serves the honorific purpose of conspicuous waste is at the same time a beautiful object, and the same application of labour to which it owes its utility for the former purpose may, and often does, give beauty of form and colour to the article. The question is further complicated by the fact that many objects, as for instance the precious stones and the metals and some other materials used for adornment and decoration, owe their utility as items of conspicuous waste to an antecedent utility as objects of beauty. Gold, for instance, has a high degree of sensuous beauty. Very many, if not most, of the highly prized works of art are intrinsically beautiful, though often with material qualification. The like is true for some stuffs used as clothing, of some landscapes, and of many other things in less degree. Except for this intrinsic beauty which they possess, these objects would scarcely have been coveted as they are, or have become monopolized objects of pride to their possessors and users. But the utility of these things to the possessor is commonly due less to their intrinsic beauty than to the honor which their possession and consumption offers, or to the obloquy which it wards off. Apart from their serviceability in other respects, these objects are beautiful and have a utility as such. They are valuable on this account if they can be appropriated or monopolized. They are, therefore, coveted as valuable possessions and their exclusive enjoyment gratifies the possessor's sense of pecuniary superiority at the same time that their contemplation gratifies his sense of beauty. But their beauty, in the naive sense of the word, is the occasion rather than the ground of their monopolization or of their commercial value. Great as is the sensuous beauty of gems, their rarity and price adds an expression of distinction to them which they would never have if they were cheap. There is indeed, in the common run of cases under this head, relatively little incentive to the exclusive possession and use of these beautiful things, except on the ground of their honorific character as items of conspicuous waste. Most objects of this general class, with the partial exception of articles of personal adornment, would serve all other purposes than the honorific one equally well, whether owned by the person viewing them or not, 
and even as regards personal ornaments it is to be added that their chief purpose is to lend eclat to the person of their wearer or owner by comparison with other persons who are compelled to do without the aesthetic serviceability of objects of beauty is not generally nor universally heightened by possession the generalization for which the discussion so far affords ground is that any valuable object in order to appeal to our sense of beauty must conform to the requirements of beauty and of expensiveness both but this is not all beyond this the canon of expensiveness also affects our tastes in such a way as to inextricably blend the marks of expensiveness in our appreciation with the beautiful features of the object and to subsume the resultant effect under the head of an appreciation of beauty simply the marks of expensiveness come to be accepted as beautiful features of the expensive articles they are pleasing as being marks of honorific costliness and the pleasure which they afford on this score blends with that afforded by the beautiful form and colour of the object so that we often declare that an article of apparel for instance is perfectly lovely when pretty much all that an analysis of the aesthetic value of the article would leave ground for is a declaration that it is pecuniarily honorific this blending and confusion of the elements of expensiveness and of beauty is perhaps best exemplified in articles of dress and of household furniture the code of reputability in matters of dress decides what shapes colours materials and general effects in human apparel are for the time to be accepted as suitable and departures from the code are offensive to our taste supposedly as being departures from aesthetic truth the approval with which we look upon fashionable attire is by no means to be accounted pure make-believe we readily and for the most part with utter sincerity find those things pleasing that are in vogue shaggy dress-stuffs and pronounced colour effects for instance offends us at time when the vogue is goods of a high glossy finish and neutral colours a fancy bonnet of this year's model unquestionably appeals to our sensibilities today much more forcible than an equally fancy bonnet of the model of last year although when viewed in the perspective of a quarter of a century it would i apprehend be a matter of the utmost difficulty to award the palm for intrinsic beauty to the one rather than to the other of these structures so again it may be remarked that considered simply in their physical juxtaposition with the human form the high gloss of a gentleman's hat or of a patent leather shoe has no more of intrinsic beauty than a similarly high gloss on a threadbare sleeve and yet there is no question but that all well-bred people in the occidental civilized communities instinctively and unaffectedly cleave to the one as a phenomenon of great beauty and eschew the other as offensive to every sense to which it can appeal it is extremely doubtful if any one could be induced to wear such a contrivance as the high hat of civilized society except for some urgent reason based on other than aesthetic grounds by further habituation to an appreciative perception of the marks of expensiveness in goods and by habitually identifying beauty with reputability it comes about that a beautiful article which is not expensive is accounted not beautiful in this way it has happened for instance that some beautiful flowers pass conventionally for offensive weeds others that can be cultivated with relative ease are accepted and admired by the lower middle class who can afford no more expensive luxuries of this kind but these varieties are rejected as vulgar by those people who are better able to pay for expensive flowers and who are educated to a higher schedule of pecuniary beauty in the florist's products while still other flowers of no greater intrinsic beauty than these are cultivated at great cost and call out much admiration from flower lovers whose tastes have been matured under the critical guidance of a polite environment 
The same variation in matters of taste from one class of society to another is visible also as regards many other kinds of consumable goods, as, for example, is the case with furniture, houses, parks and gardens. The diversity of views as to what is beautiful in these various classes of goods is not a diversity of the norm according to which the unsophisticated sense of the beautiful works. It is not a constitutional difference of endowments in the aesthetic respect, but rather a difference in the code of reputability which specifies what objects properly lie within the scope of honorific consumption for the class to which the critic belongs. It is a difference in the traditions of propriety with respect to the kind of things which may, without derogation to the consumer, be consumed under the head of objects of taste and art. With a certain allowance for variations to be accounted for on other grounds, these traditions are determined, more or less rigidly, by the pecuniary plane of life of the class. Everyday life affords many curious illustrations of the way in which the code of pecuniary beauty in articles of use varies from class to class, as well as of the way in which the conventional sense of beauty departs in its deliverances from the sense untutored by the requirements of pecuniary repute. Such a fact is the lawn, or the close-cropped yard or park, which appeals so unaffectedly to the taste of the Western peoples. It appears especially to appeal to the tastes of the well-to-do classes in those communities in which the dolico-blonde element predominates in an appreciable degree. The lawn, unquestionably, has an element of sensuous beauty, simply as an object of apperception, and as such, no doubt it appeals pretty directly to the eye of nearly all races, and all classes, but it is, perhaps, more unquestionably beautiful to the eye of the dolico-blonde than to most other varieties of men. This higher appreciation of a stretch of greensward in this ethnic element than in the other elements of the population goes along with certain other features of the dolico-blonde temperament that indicate that this racial element had once been for a long time a pastoral people inhabiting a region with a humid climate. The close-cropped lawn is beautiful in the eyes of the people whose inherited bent it is to readily find pleasure in contemplating a well-preserved pasture or grazing land. For the aesthetic purpose the lawn is a cow-pasture, and in some cases today, where the expensiveness of the attendant circumstances bars out any imputation of thrift, the idyll of the dolico-blonde is rehabilitated in the introduction of a cow into a lawn or private ground. In such cases, the cow made use of is commonly of an expensive breed. The vulgar suggestion of thrift, which is nearly inseparable from the cow, is a standing objection to the decorative use of this animal. So that in all cases, except where luxurious surroundings negate this suggestion, the use of the cow as an object of taste must be avoided. Were the predilection for some grazing animal to fill out the suggestion of the pasture is too strong to be suppressed, the cow's place is often given up to some more or less inadequate substitute, such as deer, antelopes, or some such exotic beast. These substitutes, although less beautiful to the pastoral eye of western man than the cow, are in such cases preferred because of their superior expensiveness or futility, and their consequent repute. They are not vulgarly lucrative either in fact or in suggestion. Public parks, of course, fall in the same category with the lawn. They, too, at their best, are imitations of the pasture. Such a park is, of course, best kept by grazing, and the cattle on the grass are themselves no mean addition to the beauty of the thing, as need scarcely be insisted on with anyone who has once seen a well-kept pasture. But it is worth noting, as an expression of the pecuniary element in popular taste, that such a method of keeping public grounds is seldom resorted to. The best that is done by skilled workmen under the supervision of a trained keeper is a more or less close imitation of a pasture, 
but the result invariably falls somewhat short of the artistic effect of grazing. But to the average popular apprehension, a herd of cattle so pointedly suggests thrift and usefulness that their presence in the public pleasure ground would be intolerably cheap. This method of keeping grounds is comparatively inexpensive. Therefore, it is indecorous. Of the same general bearing is another feature of public grounds. There is a studious exhibition of expensiveness coupled with a make-believe of simplicity and crude serviceability. Private grounds also show the same physiognomy wherever they are in the management or ownership of persons whose tastes have been formed under middle-class habits of life or under the upper-class traditions of no later a date than the childhood of the generation that is now passing. Grounds which conform to the instructed tastes of the latter-day upper-class do not show these features in so marked a degree. The reason for this difference in tastes between the past and the incoming generation of the well-bred lies in the changing economic situation. A similar difference is perceptible in other respects, as well as in the accepted ideals of pleasure grounds. In this country, as in most others, until the last half-century, but a very small proportion of the population were possessed of such wealth as would exempt them from thrift. Owing to imperfect means of communication, this small fraction were scattered and out of effective touch with one another. There was therefore no basis for a growth of taste in disregard of expensiveness. The revolt of the well-bred taste against vulgar thrift was unchecked. Wherever the unsophisticated sense of beauty might show itself sporadically in an approval of inexpensive or thrifty surroundings, it would lack the social confirmation which nothing but a considerable body of like-minded people can give. There was, therefore, no effective upper-class opinion that would overlook evidences of possible inexpensiveness in the management of grounds, and there was consequently no appreciable divergence between the leisure class and the lower middle class ideal in the physiognomy of pleasure grounds. Both classes equally constructed their ideals with the fear of pecuniary disrepute before their eyes. End of the second part of chapter 6